Well, good morning, now that you can see my face. Now you might recognize me. I don't know that you could recognize me uh, before. As Brad said, I'm currently taking classes at Covenant Seminary, which I think might make Brad kind of proud as that is his alma mater, um, which he received his pastoral training from um, being in seminary. Brad told me I had an hour and a half to try to give you everything I've learned. no, I'm kidding. I, I, I hope not to go um, that long. Um, Heath, thank you for the liturgy today. I really feel like there were a lot of portions of it that you could have preached what my sermon is. And I'm thankful for that because it just tells me that um, our worship often is the word of God to us that we can continue to participate in and receive and rest um, the love of God. And so... Um, yeah, just a little, a little bit more about myself. I'm currently no longer at the call. Um, I work at Simmons Bank in the IT department in the Lord's Providence, a place that I never thought I'd find myself, but it had afforded us the opportunity to move to Little Rock to become more part of the life of Central Hope Church as I'm there as a pastoral intern, uh, learning from Dan, having opportunities to preach and work in the life of the church and learn what it means to minister to and serve the church. Um, I'm thankful that y'all have given me the opportunity to bring the word of God to you. And so our text is 1 John 4, 13 through 21. And I'd like to pray before we read that. So take a moment to find it. And then we will seek the Lord's guidance in this. Father, I thank you for the grace to speak your word to others, that I may have the opportunity to love them by meeting their need of your word. Father, we thank you that you have met our many needs in loving us, and that you've given us your word, that you've revealed to us who you are, and that you have loved us so greatly. Father, I ask that we would leave this place renewed by your spirit, resting in the love that you have for us. It's in your Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our text is 1 John 4, 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may may have confidence on the day of judgment, because as as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As I studied for this, I really found myself focusing primarily on the first 
three verses of this entire passage. Um, I found that this could easily be broken down into two parts, um, primarily this receiving and resting in the love of God, and then our applicable response to that in the world. And so I think, myself included, I think we often forget that God loves us. And that seems really simple and basic, but I think if we were honest and examined different aspects of our life, we would see that there's areas in which we don't really believe that God doesn't really love me in this, or that God is neutral to this part of our life, or that he's apathetic to it, that it doesn't really come under the banner of his love for us. That's been uniquely challenging for me in in my training so far, and which has really led to a lot of what I hope that you hear today. And so speaking a little bit to the text itself, this letter was written by the Apostle John, likely in the city of Ephesus. Um, That doesn't mean that it was limited to the city of Ephesus or that it was written to all the people in Ephesus. This was a letter written to the church, written to the people of God. Now, most of us, I don't think, have come from a pagan religion into Christian faith. It's not a common story, at least in these parts. But in Ephesus, there were many gods to be loved by and many gods to seek approval from. There was even the temptation to worship the emperor and seek love from him and to love the emperor. It was a requirement then, which often led to Christian persecution at the time. As well, it was easy to fall into the social norms of the day and love people or not love people other than them. You don't worship this God? Well, I hate you. You don't look like me? Well, I hate you. You didn't get circumcised? Well, I hate you. Um, As Reformed Presbyterians, I think we can easily dislike other people for not agreeing with our understanding of who God is in the gospel. As some people call it the cage stage reform, you start learning about the doctrines of grace and you get angry because it's like, how can you not see it? I've been there. And by the grace of God, I've uh, he's transformed my heart to be less angsty about the truths that we so dearly hold to. And we should hold dearly to those truths, but we, we, it's really easy to look down on people who don't agree with us. And that's a constant temptation that I have to fight against. And so we today don't typically think of other deities that we're tempted to worship, but we're tempted to worship idols, to seek love from idols, to give love to idols, whether that be entertainment or as so aptly put in a lot of our prayers, in our communal prayer time, um, comfort, worshiping comfort, seeking love from comfort, seeking love from culture rather than the kingdom of God. And that's not to say that culture is inherently evil, but it's really easy to fall into the ways of the world and hope that the world loves us. We're not that different from the people of Ephesus. And that's why this letter is written for us as well. And so 
from the outset of creation, we were made to be loved by God. From the very beginning of time, it was God's intention to love us. And we often think of Adam and Eve's role in the garden as primarily about loving and obeying God, and that's true, but God also walked with them. God tended to their needs, provided all that they could ever need. He drew near to them. It was God's intention in creation to love by creating them and to ongoingly love them. All of creation, God intended to love and tend to. And that includes us. We are creatures of the sixth day. We're not separate from creation entirely. And so from the outset of our existence, we were created to receive and rest in the love of God. However, uh, as we all know, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We rejected receiving his love and desired to love ourselves, which led to our expulsion from the presence of God and from the garden. And the narrative of Scripture has been God's redeeming, his restoring, his undoing of all of that. In our prayer time before this in Brad's office, I saw that painting on his, on his wall just above his desk, and I really was like looking at it and thinking, oh man, this is like, that's what I'm talking about. Because it's, it's the gospel. This things fall apart, and God puts them all back together in the person and the work of Christ. And so, as so aptly put in our liturgy, and what I want you to take away from this is that because God has first loved us, we can receive and rest in the love that God has given us. One of the things that we're trying to put to practice in some of the classes I'm in right now is researching the ways the world thinks about love. And so you type into Google, what is love? And you, naturally, you pull up a song from 1994. Um, or if you've watched the Pepsi commercial where the guy like bobs his head a little bit, and um, that song, which... I was born in 1994, just to, to date myself a little bit. So, <laughs> so I, was, I was born when that song came out. But I watched the music video for that song to try to discover what is love. I didn't learn anything. Uh, there was some vampires in there, so apparently love has to do with vampires. I don't, I don't get that at all. But that was the connection the music video made. But I think our culture has a lot to discuss about what love is today. For some people, they try to say that love is radical affirmation of the self, of others, of me. If you don't affirm everything about me, then you don't love me. We think of the opposite of that, you don't, is hating someone. And so culture is shifting a lot of what they think love is. And we often think of love as good feelings, goodwill towards someone. Or as people younger than me and in my demographic say, good vibes. Which I, I don't get it. I don't like saying that. But something that Dan and I talk about and Dan tries to instill in those of us who are in this pastoral intern program is that love is a process of meeting needs. We have needs. They need to be met. And so we love one another. And God loves us by meeting our needs. And so... God has loved us and met our needs in three ways that I want to give to you from the first three verses of this text is that God loves us by sending us his spirit. God loves us by being the savior of the world. 
And God loves us by abiding in us. And so God loves us by sending his spirit to us. The spirit coming, which we see in the narrative of scripture at Pentecost, the first time the spirit descends and indwells all people who are in God's family, is a fulfillment of a long-standing promise from God from Ezekiel 36, where he says that I will put my spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. And so in shaping our understanding of how God has loved us in this way, we see that God has given us himself, and that by the Holy Spirit, he has changed us. And so as I said earlier, originally God's intention in creation was to ongoingly love us, to be present with us, and then Adam and Eve fell and were cast out of the garden, no longer in the presence of God. And we see the presence of God as a constant motif throughout all of Scripture. We see it in the burning bush, the tabernacle, the pillar of fire, the cloud, the temple. All of these things are the mediated presence of God. God's not, he's, he's there, but he's there through something else, through a part of his creation. And so the spirit coming is a reversal of our expulsion from God's presence. And I, I've often thought that if I could be back when Jesus was on earth, you know, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, that my faith would be bolstered and be stronger than it ever was before. But Jesus tells us the opposite of that in the Gospels, actually. He says, it's better that I go away so that I can send the Spirit to you. Because in some mysterious way, God in us is better than God with us. I can't try to tell you that I really understand that fully. But God has given us himself, the third person of the Trinity. And we're in Trinity Fellowship. The three persons of the one triune God is important to our faith. And so he gives us himself to be in us, to be with us at all times. Now I think of times where my wife and I have gotten in an argument where she's trying to talk to me and I'm busy pecking around on my keyboard or scrolling on my phone looking at something. She's not, she gets frustrated with that, but it's not because I'm not listening primarily. It's because I'm not giving her myself in those moments. I'm not giving her my full attention. I'm not giving her my presence. I'm there, but I'm not really there. And so as he gives himself to us, he changes who we are. As Presbyterians, we're good at confessing the things about God. We saw it in our hymnals, saw it in our liturgy. I really can't tell you, I'm so thankful for the liturgy. I'm, I come from a tradition growing up where that wasn't a thing. And so it's just, it has blessed me in my time that um, I've dove into Presbyterianism and become a part of this tradition. I'm just so thankful for it. Um, and so we're good at confessing that righteousness only comes by faith and faith by hearing and faith is a gift from God. We, we confess those things regularly. 
and praise God for those things. And it is by the promised Holy Spirit that these things come. The Spirit comes. He gives grace to us proveniently. He wells up within us faith to confess that Jesus is Lord. And he applies to us the righteousness of Jesus that Jesus has won for us on the cross in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And in doing this, we see this mysterious thing where he unites us to Jesus. I'll keep that in your mind. I'm going to touch on that some more down the line as we get to verse 15. But the Spirit applies to us all the things that God has done for us. Applying ointment to a wound. It's an act of love to provide the things we need. We need the righteousness of Christ. We need faith. We need holiness. We need sanctification. And the Holy Spirit does all of these things within us. He removes from us the heart of stone, gives us the heart of flesh. He, that is the applying of the righteousness of Jesus. And he causes us to walk in his ways, which First John tells us that it is loving others because God has first loved us. Now, certainly we're all children at some point. Uh, some of you might have just sprung up as an adult. Um, I used to be really short. I'm still pretty short. Um, but in that time, I'm, we're all dependent on our caregiver, our grandparents, our parents, um, whoever that may be. And so I recall being about four or five and my family gathering for the 4th of July and everybody's playing basketball outside between shooting fireworks and I had one particular family member who could make that 10-foot leap and slam it into the goal. I thought that was pretty cool. But being four or five, can't quite make that jump. It's not going to happen. And so my grandfather sees me trying to, like, jump off of this trailer hitch and throw the ball as high as I can. And he comes up to me and he hands me the ball and he picks me up, lifts me above his head so that I can reach the goal. And my little hands just barely touching it, slam the ball in there and I hang on to the goal for a moment. And he's holding me. I don't really feel it at that point, but I'm pretty excited. I just slammed this ball through the, through the rim. And so it might, it's simple, but that's the reality of it. God enters into our life and he changes something about who we are so that we can walk in his ways and experience his love. And so the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's that simple. God loves us, being present in us and with us, meeting our needs by his very life in ours. His being present with us and in us changes who we are, and we can receive and rest in that because it's not anything that we earned. It's not anything we did to get that. It's purely grace, grace from the beginning, grace from its initiation, grace even now. Your Christian walk with Christ is still nothing but grace, nothing but love that God has for you. And so we often think, and y'all mentioned that Gage would be preaching here next Sunday, and I've been really appreciative of the podcast that they've been doing called Assurance of Pardon, and they mentioned in the last one uh, that for evangelical culture we often think of quiet time as being like, earning God's love and if your quiet time doesn't go as well as it should or you're learning from God that God loves you less or God 
isn't with you as much as he was the day before. And they said it really succinctly, and I'm not much of a crier, but I almost wept listening to it, but that regardless of what you do today or tomorrow, God is completely satisfied with you as you are in Christ. As we are united to him, his, his love goes nowhere. His love never diminishes. It is maximized fully because of the work of Jesus dying for our sins, raising to new life, and giving us that new life through his Holy Spirit. And so when those of you here at Trinity are low, feeling sad, depressed, due to a work situation, the stress of raising a family, or sin that has seemingly defeated you or them. Bear their burden. Delight for them. Delight in the love of God for them. Rest in the love of God for them and remind them with a spirit of love, the, love, the spirit of love that you've received that, of the great love that God has for them. That he's present in their suffering. So the Spirit giving us this love, this faith, we confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world, which is in verse 14. That apart from the Spirit, we would not make such a confession, but I want to touch on the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world in two ways. He's the Savior, savior of us, redeeming us, and he's the Redeemer cosmologically. That's a big word. And just Essentially, Jesus is the Savior, the Redeemer of everything. As faithful Reformed theologians have said before, there's, there's not a square inch of all creation that God's redemption does not touch. And so we might say that Jesus being the Savior seems like a very elementary concept. However, Tim Keller says it very winsomely that we never graduate from the gospel. We're just bringing more of our life under the banner of the gospel. And this is just as much true as it is for us, or just as much true then as it is for us now. And we as American Christians, we often think of salvation very individually. And that's certainly true. And I think of it that way, mostly. But a part of my training, I've realized how wide the scope of Jesus' redemption is. Jesus' redemption as one of my professors has put it, is as far as the curse of sin is found. If sin is everywhere, Jesus' redemption is everywhere. And so, what this, is, this means two things. Jesus is the Savior of all people. And second, Jesus is the Savior of all things. And so Jesus' final commission before he ascended to heaven was that his apostles would take the gospel to all nations, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What that doesn't mean is every land mass, but what it means is every people, all people. The New Testament word used to describe this is often ethne, which is where we get our word ethnicity from. And I think it's incredibly important in this day and time to realize that Jesus' redemption is for all people, not just us and those whom we most easily relate to. That's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. I was having dinner with my father last night, and I was talking to him about current events, and I just said, look, I'm humble enough to admit that 
Even within the last week, I've issued prejudice towards someone. And I've got to repent of that and change. And so the gospel is not to go to every land mass. If it was, I don't want to be the guy who draws the short straw and has to plant a church in Antarctica. That would be terrible. My wife would be very upset. But what it does mean, as I've said, is that the gospel is available and applicable to every people in the world. We see it in Revelation 7, the great multitude that John is unable to count. Every tribe, nation, and tongue, as Paul says in his writings to the church, that God has made one new man. He's breaking down barriers for everyone. There is no Jew, no Greek, no slave or free. Jesus is the Savior of all people. Second, Jesus is the Savior of everything. This has been new for me. It's been really encouraging for me as I've learned about this. As I said, Jesus and his redemptive act is reversing all of the things that have come from the fall. In creation, all of it has been infected by sin. And so this is a strong emphasis in all of John's writing, even his gospel, his letters, and the revelation. Is he's undoing the curse that affects everything. From nature to our dominioning over earth, creating culture and things like that, that God's redeeming and bringing out of those things his glory. This has been particularly challenging to me because things in this world aren't that great all the time. But as we confess that the love of God will never leave us and that somehow out of everything, God's bringing about restoration. In Jesus' substitutionary atonement for us, he is victorious over sin, death, and Satan. The things that ruled over the world before Christ and his work on the cross. Now, I've always been a fan of World War II era. The World War II era, I've always found it to be very fascinating. Some of my favorite movies are Saving Private Ryan or the show Band of Brothers. Nazi Germany had invaded much of Western Europe, Northern Europe, and Northern Africa. For those in Europe, everything seemed hopeless. Because the Nazi, Nazi regime, regime didn't come in and just supplant their government and apply a new government to it. They took over everything. They took over the people's culture, their jobs, their livelihood, their families. They burned their paintings, destroyed their buildings, burned books. Anything about these people that they were invading, they destroyed it because they thought their way of life was better than theirs. Then the United States got involved invading northern France on D-Day. Men giving their lives for the sake of restoring Europe to what it used to be what it should have been. Eventually, V-Day came, and the war was won, at least on the European front. And it freed not just the people individually, but it freed their culture, it freed their land. I don't know if any of you have been to Europe. I've not had the blessing of going to Europe, but um, you can see areas where the war there destroyed the land. What used to be called no man zones, there used to be forest 
standing there and they wiped it all clean. You couldn't even come out of a trench. Even creation itself was affected by the ravages of war. All things have been freed by the love of God through Christ, the Savior of the entire world. Let us receive and rest in that fact that Jesus is the Savior of all things, that there's not a single area of our life in which Jesus isn't Lord over, that he isn't bringing about redemption. And his love in that is secure by the work of the Spirit. As I said earlier, there's not a moment where Jesus is less satisfied with you than he is right now because of his work. That's why we can have a confession of faith in our liturgy because we know that we're secure in the love of God. It is the loving kindness of God that leads us, leads us to repentance, not his overwhelming hate towards our sin. That's what the scriptures say. It's his loving kindness. And so we can encourage one another to receive and rest in this love, to delight in the fact that Jesus is the Savior of all things, to encourage others that, look, you can repent because God's got you secure. That you don't have to fear trouble at work. You don't have to fear trouble in society. You don't have to fear trouble in culture. And as being changed people by the Holy Spirit, we can participate passively. It's always the Spirit who's working about redemption, but he's called us to go forth and be missional in that. We can challenge things and say, hey, that doesn't align with the kingdom of God because we ourselves are not point but Jesus, the Savior of all things, the Redeemer of all things, is the point. So Christ, as the Savior of the world, has come into creation, and in some mysterious way, he's wrapped himself up in redeeming creation. And as a result, we're wrapped up in him. God loves us by abiding in us. Now, I mentioned in the first point that the Holy Spirit is in us and the Holy Spirit wells up in us this testimony that Jesus is the Savior of the world and such leads us to confessing that Jesus is Lord. And somehow, some way, we're abiding in him. And abiding is kind of a strange word. Another way to put this is that God lives in us and us in God. To speak plainly, we are the Holy Spirit. Spirit's temple, as Paul puts it. And it is as if Jesus is the atmosphere by which we exist in. It's not easy to make heads or tails of. I'm not going to pretend to fully get it, but somehow, some way, you and I are swaddled in Christ right now as He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Nothing. Nothing's taken us away from that. We're not being removed from him in that way. It's not happening. Which is why we confess what we said earlier in Romans 8, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God because we've been bound to Christ, who has received the full measure of the love of God as the Son of God. In all circumstances, in all situations, 
God has us in his grip. Tending to our needs, sustaining our faith in temptation, and loving us as we humbly repent. And in our, his abiding in us, holding on to us, he sanctifies us, causing us to walk in his ways. As Brad said in introducing me, I used to work for the call, which was a foster care and adoption organization. And I was able to experience the story of a young man who had been abused and neglected by his family. It's one of my favorite stories from that time. And his violence... Or his, the violence towards him began to reap violence towards others. He began to become violent. And at some point, a kid his age broke his jaw and he ended up in the hospital. Child Protective Services got involved, leading to his placement in foster care. A family stepped up and said, we want to adopt this teen. They were legally and personally binding themselves in unwavering love to this young man. And oftentimes, early on, he raged against that love. He refused to receive their love for him. He refused to rest in their binding to him. And in his fighting against this newfound union, this newfound love, he at some point injured his new father to the point where his father had to go to the hospital. Eventually, though, the young man decided that it was time to give it up, to receive this family's love who had bound themselves to him covenantly, covenantally, that they weren't going anywhere, that their love wasn't wavering from them or from, from him. He was secure, bound to them. Now this young man is a college student and following after Christ. We too are bound to Christ in a similar way. Jesus has us, and we can rest in that. His love for you will never waver. His love for you will never diminish as you face hardship or experience struggle. I think we can all agree that times today aren't easy, and we can rest and have joy in the fact that God loves us, and he's got us in our grips regardless of how things shape out. So encourage one another that Christ has them, that has you. If someone struggling deeply with depression or sin, encourage them that their sin does not outweigh the love of God as he is abiding in them. On the same note, too, we can encourage each other that as we abide in Christ, as we testify that Jesus is the Savior of all things in every area of our life, that God has sent us his spirit and changed us, that we can resist sin too and encourage one another to flee from temptation. I think it's pretty easy to talk about what we need to do in going and loving other people. It's often really difficult to find the ways that we need to receive and rest in the love of God. I struggle with that. Because I want to believe that I need to earn my love for God. That Jesus has earned it for me. And the love that he has earned, his righteousness that he has, the Spirit has applied it to me. He's applied it to you. The Spirit dwells in you and wells up in you faith. Jesus is the Savior of every aspect of your life. And he is 
abiding in you and you are abiding in him, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us, that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from you on account of Jesus. We don't have to iron it. Your love doesn't waver for us that we can rest in you and know that you are satisfied with us, that no sin, no faltering of our own can remove us from your love. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you. Encourage us by your spirit to receive and rest in your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.